This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Yesterday on his final day in China, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau spoke out about Canadians who are detained overseas, including Neil Bantelman, of course, the Burlington teacher who's been detained in Indonesia for a, a couple of years now. He says that he knows how important it is to have government that is concerned for the welfare of citizens abroad. To talk more about all of this and what this does for Neil Bantelman's case, Guy Bantelman is with us, uh, brother of Neil Bantelman, the Canadian teacher imprisoned in Indonesia, and he is with us now. Hello, Guy. How are you today? Good, Scott. How are you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. So, uh, first of all, briefly, as I always ask you to do, give everybody an update in case they do not know what's happening in this case. Can you give us a capsulized version of what happened and where we are to date? Sure. So, uh, as you said, you know, for the last couple of years, we've been dealing with uh, allegations uh, against my brother and uh, several other individuals who have all been tried and convicted and other at different times acquitted of this case and currently for Neil uh, specifically we are uh, working on a judicial review which is a review of the way that the courts work the way that the law was applied and uh, obtaining any new evidence to try and uh, reverse the verdict and have Neil uh, freed. And where are we now uh, at what point as far as the timeline with this judicial review? Uh, unfortunately the timeline is kind of um, loose. There is no set process. There is no timeline when it comes to this. This is uh, uh, currently our legal team working on the review and putting together all the the, uh, the, the documentation, preparing the dossier to submit it. And once it's submitted, the Supreme Court will assign a panel of three judges to review uh, the entire case. Now, talk about what happened with Prime Minister Trudeau. Were you aware that he was going to bring up uh, your brother's case? Uh, when I talk to Global Affairs, they kind of give us a heads up on uh, their intentions. Obviously, you never know what's going to play out, just given the, the different uh, opportunities that will arise. But uh, when I, I spoke with Global Affairs, when I spoke with uh, Prime Minister Trudeau back in July, they uh, confirmed to me that the Canadian government would continue to raise this case at the highest level uh, with uh, Indonesian authorities whenever that opportunity arose. And, Obviously, uh, Prime Minister had that opportunity while he was at the G20 summit and, uh, and, and did bring it up. So it's, it's encouraging that they are falling through their uh, words with actual actions. And you have discussed this with the Prime Minister, is that correct? Yeah, well, I, was, uh, I had an opportunity to meet with the Prime Minister when I was in Calgary earlier in the summer, and he reaffirmed the government's commitment to Neil and the resources of global affairs, and again, working uh, through every diplomatic channel available to raise the case and bring a, a positive resolution to this at some point. What was that discussion like? What can you tell us? Uh, you know, there are some things, obviously, that have to remain confidential, mm -hmm. but it was it was encouraging. You know, he uh, is passionate about the case. Uh, he has a background uh, as a teacher. He uh, obviously is a world traveler, and it's been part of his life uh, growing up, um, you know, in the shadow of his father. Mm -hmm. So he understands uh, what it's like to be uh, a Canadian citizen in other countries, and what needs to uh, what needs to be achieved, what rights need to be protected, and I, I think he has an ability to really comprehend how to how do we achieve that. And it's it, it's not just by diplomatic means. There is you know public sentiment. There is the media. There is the whole legal process, and it's it's using all of those in parallel to hopefully bring a resolution to this case. How long was your chat? Uh, we had about 15 minutes to talk. Uh, I was uh, I had the opportunity to uh, attend his event, and uh, he was aware I was there. They had set up a um, kind of a sidebar for uh, for us to talk in, in a private uh, area. And again, very engaged. He uh, was well briefed on Neil's case. Uh, 
knew a number of, uh, of details. And, and that's encouraging when you've got the prime minister of a country that is, is taking the time to um, to learn about the case and, and to listen. And, and that's, uh, again, very positive for Neil and for the family overall. That must have been incredible, encur- incredibly encouraging for you to have that face-to-face. It was. He, uh, you know, he allowed me to, uh, you know, talk not only about, you know, Neil and the case, but he, he let me be, you know, personal and uh, share a couple of stories with him. And that that also helps because, you know, I don't want Neil to be just a face. I want people to understand, you know, the person behind uh, all of this and, you know, and, and what a, an amazing individual he is and make sure that that's conveyed just as much as uh, the details of the case. So uh, Global Affairs made you aware that they were going to attempt something like this, and if the opportunity came up, they would certainly take advantage of it. Have you talked to them since uh, this all happened and any idea of, of what actually was said? Uh, unfortunately not. Uh, with the long weekend, it, it makes it difficult to mm-hmm. have communications with uh, Global Affairs, but I put a call in just to, you know, to issue my thanks, obviously. And get some more detail. They they tend to remain fairly tight lipped. Um, yeah, you know they're they're not going to release exactly who he spoke to or the actual dialogue. But I I, I think the, the statement that's been made and, and the comments that uh, the prime minister made in his uh, his media brief uh, were a good summation of I'm, I'm sure exactly what was conveyed. Do you know who exactly he did speak to regarding this? No, I don't. I you know I, I know certain individuals from the Indonesian senior leadership that would have been there, but I don't know who exactly he would have talked to. What does it do for your case, for Neil's case, by having this uh, come off the Prime Minister's lips, by having Neil's name uh, being mentioned? What, what value well, do you think that has? Yeah, well, immediately, obviously, it puts the spotlight back on the case. Uh, I think uh, that was clear just in you know the way my phone rang and my email kind of blew up on, uh, on Sunday, uh, which is encouraging. Uh, we go through, you know, the summer where, you know, things kind of move to the back burner a little bit. You know, it gets quiet mm-hmm. in Jakarta, it's, you know, quiet in Canada also. And uh, as the House, you know, reconvenes in Ottawa and we start to hold our meetings with MPs again to, to make them aware that Neil is still there and this case is still ongoing, it, it almost kick-started that. So it was, uh, you know, very welcome. It was um, encouraging to see that and you know, the media right away picked up on it. And, has allowed us to get the message out there even further. When was the last time you spoke with Neil? Uh, I spoke with Neil uh, late last week, and we talked about you know kind of where we are in terms of the judicial review. Uh, again, part of the challenge is that this is a very fluid type of process with uh, that doesn't that isn't uh, encountered very often in Indonesia. So we need to you know come up with our ideas of you know what information we can provide with respect to new evidence or how we perceived we were treated through uh, the various court cases. And, you know, we drive a lot of that. There's feedback from the team there. Uh, but it's a lot of, you know, let's talk about it, then they go away and get some work done and go back. It's, it's not like they can see Neil every day, unfortunately. So a lot of it has to happen when uh, Neil is in prison and they're off working uh, in their offices. Was Neil aware of uh, that the prime minister may be bringing this up? Again, the government has told us that they'll take that opportunity. Uh, they, you know, they've they've done this on several other occasions and smaller right. types of conferences. But because it was the prime minister, because it was you know a G20, I think it, it garnered a lot more attention. And I, I did send a note to Neil and Tracy on uh, Sunday, Saturday night, Sunday evening, and just informed them. And obviously, they're very encouraged. And again, it's it, it's always positive when we we get this sort of feedback and this sort of support. And how is Neil doing? 
Uh, I think he's frustrated. Uh, that would probably be the best way to describe where he is. As I said, going through the judicial review, this is not a situation where they say, okay, here's the written decision. You've got 30 days to put your dossier together. Uh, it's, you know, we work on this and, and there is no time frame. And once they get the documentation, there is no time frame for them to respond to us. So as much as, you know, we're working to put together a very comprehensive package, even once we submit that, you know, it, it kind of rests in their hands and the ball's in their court. So that's the frustrating piece because there is no, there's a light at the end of the tunnel, but, you know, it's, it's a long way off still. How is Tracy managing? But Tracy's, uh, Tracy's good. As You know, we've said a million times, she's a very, very strong woman. Uh, she has gone back uh, to work at the school on a part-time basis, which I think is good for her uh, to, you know, have a little bit of a distraction, but also to have that support. And uh, she needs to be able to focus on a couple other things. You know, she's she's been an incredible foundation for Neil throughout this entire ordeal. Uh, but, you know, she's got to take care of herself, and, and she has to remain strong to support Neil. So it's, uh, it's, it's good for her to have another outlet from that perspective. Does this still have legs in Indonesia? What's the response there, even at this point? I mean, obviously, it's been a while. How is this still staying in the headlines? Yeah, they, uh, there are a couple of groups um, internally that have uh, banded together to offer their support, not only to Neil and um, his, uh, the co-accused Ferdinand, but also the cleaners that are also incarcerated. Uh, there are a couple of uh, NGOs, um, Southeast Asia Human Rights Watch, have picked this up, and you know they're pursuing it. So uh, those groups, along with you know the U.S. government, the British government, you know what Canada's doing, they're all supporting it. So we're we're unfortunately going through a bit of a transition period where, as I said, you know people are coming back from summer vacation and school starting. We've also had a new ambassador appointed in, uh, for Canada to Indonesia. We've got a new ambassador coming in from the U.S. Uh, so while we continue to have that support, we have some new players involved, and uh, it all is a bit of a learning curve, and it's important that we get everyone up to date and up to speed as soon as possible. So you have to reintroduce these people to the case all over again, I guess. To a point. You know, they're, they are briefed. Uh, we make sure we have uh, some of those discussions occur even before they, they leave. I know the Canadian ambassador was fully briefed on the case before he left Ottawa, and that's encouraging. We uh, are looking, at, obviously, forward to forging that relationship with him, but what you run into somewhat is they, they need now to kind of understand the lay of the land and how far they can push issues and who to talk to, and, and that's a bit of a learning curve, too. So it does it does slow us down somewhat. I know, obviously, you're, you and the family frustrated uh, with the hurry-up-and-wait and attitude. Now that summer is finally coming to a close and we are entering the fall, as you said, school's back, do you think things will start to move a little quicker? Yeah, I think there'll be a, a, a little bit more focus. Uh, I'll head back to Ottawa later this month and have uh, you know subsequent discussions with a, a number of different MPs. Uh, that'll continue to push it forward. You know, we've got some requests in from different organizations for pieces of information that we think will be critical to the judicial review, and you know we keep working on those. But again, summertime is people are out of the office, and it's tougher to have that accomplished. But again. Uh, we've got a focus there, and I am hoping that now that you know we're kind of back to a bit of normalcy, that we will be able to push this on faster. Uh, once again, Guy, can you give us the website, social media, any way people can find out more about all of this? Yeah, absolutely. On um, uh, on Facebook, uh, Free Neil Bantleman. There's a, a Facebook page there. Uh, on the web, uh, freenealandferdy.org. Uh, and again, if you search Twitter, you'll find uh, a Free Neil page on Twitter also. 
Guy Bantelman has been with us, brother of Neil Bantelman, the Canadian teacher imprisoned in Indonesia. And good news, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau has spoke about these cases uh, while overseas. Guy, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. And of course, whenever any updates come up, feel free to give us a call. Great. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Kelly Leach, candidate for the leadership of the Progressive Conservative Party, said that her proposal to bet newcomers for anti-Canadian values has to do with promoting tolerance and respect, not being divisive. The Canadian press says Conservative leadership candidate Kelly Leach says her proposal to bet newcomers uh, has everything to do with promoting tolerance and respect and nothing to do with singling out Muslims or otherwise stoking divisions. She says, quote, I don't think it's intolerant to believe in a set of values that we expect everyone to share here and include those people who are coming to visit or immigrate to Canada, she said in an interview with the Canadian press. To talk more about all of this, and I should mention that we have reached out to uh, Kelly Leach and at this point uh, have just been unable to set something up, but we'll certainly try in the future. Uh, Peter Grave is with us, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Hello, Peter. How are you today? Great, thanks. Back to class, back to school. What's it like for you? Uh, It's great for me. I'm not sure for the students. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Your thoughts on what has happened, what has transpired, and what has become the the, the case surrounding Kelly Leach. Do we we have a a core set of values that everybody agrees on? Uh... I'm not sure we do. I mean, that's part of why we have politics as uh, a, a way of deciding which are which values we're going to translate into the policies that the state uh, pursues. So, I mean, politics is about uh, a fight over values, and so it's kind of hard to know. Well, what are the Canadian values, and and what are the limits of them? Although, I mean, there are a number of principles that are pretty widely shared that uh, are part of our politics, whether it's a, a kind of a fundamental legal equality of men and women. Uh, whether it's uh, the idea that we should try to make decisions based on you know, democratic processes of uh, giving everyone a vote and a chance to elect uh, members of parliament. I mean, we can, we can point to some really big picture things, but you know, when you begin getting a bit more finer grained, it's harder to say what is a Canadian value and, and what it is changes from year to year. What we would say Canadian values are uh, in 2016 would be different than even, say, five years ago. Hmm. I mean, the case being, you know, Kelly Leach being about the rights of gays and lesbians when her own party really just uh, removed uh, the language uh, being opposed to gay marriage uh, a few months ago. So, I mean, what is the Canadian value on that? Well, certainly it's shifted a lot uh, in a relatively short period of time. Can we vet for values if we can't identify them? Uh, well, I'm not sure how you'd vet for values. Uh, I mean, if you had to fill out a bubble test, uh, I'm sure people could game it. It probably wouldn't be too hard to figure you, out what the answers were that people were looking for. You bring up a valid point. Is this something you can gauge in someone? Because at the end of the day, uh, a person who's coming in for such an interview or takes such a test, I would presume that they would brush up on exactly what they need to say. Yeah, and I mean it's I mean it's really hard to understand how you would you would get at some of those things. I mean you can think about friends in your own life who you think you know really well, and then they say something and you're like, what? I didn't know this person at all. I mean, yeah. all was said and done, or that was just completely not in keeping with everything else I knew about them. So, how you would really engage in those kinds of uh, tests? I mean, in a way. I mean, it's a bit like making people uh, swear on Bibles uh, when, you know, a lot of people don't believe, uh, you know, are atheists, you mm-hmm. know, but it becomes sort of a, a symbol of uh, trust. But uh, at the end of the day, you know, people can say all kinds of things uh, to get past tests or, you know, to deal with the symbolism of a situation that doesn't really reflect 
uh, their beliefs and their ideals. I mean, I guess the other thing to ask is, I mean, a lot of Canadians uh, wouldn't share the ideals that we might be asking, uh, uh, you know, of newcomers. Exactly. On what basis, then, do we say uh, people coming to the country have to uh, belong in the sense of sharing these values when, I mean, many Canadians presumably uh, wouldn't hold them? Is values the wrong word here? I mean, is it less about values and more about law? As you said, by law, equal rights. By law, we have this, that, the other. I mean, isn't that enough? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, I think people, some people would say for a country uh, to persist, you need more than simply a set of laws. You have to have some sorts of sense of community and living together. And I think mm. uh, people who would be supportive of Kelly Leach's policy might be worried that uh, people coming to Canada uh, would be sufficiently different in their outlooks and dispositions uh, in the world that uh, somehow you know the Canadian identity or what holds us together uh, would somehow begin to fall apart and we wouldn't have the basis of understanding. Uh, you know, so I mean, I think that's a, a pretty uh, common and standard set of fears. I mean, we see a lot of them in Western Europe, uh, uh, with the resurgence of this idea that we should have stricter set tests for uh, citizenship. Uh, but you know, it's always again, it's a it's a difficult question: what actually makes a society cohere or fit together? Uh, and you know, it's not always certain that you know that we're really seeing the societies falling apart so much as people who had a set way of how they like to be. Uh, find that questioned and would rather not have that questioning or would not rather not want to see people live otherwise. Uh, so, I mean, there's, there's that aspect, too, where some of it is really not about what works to keep countries together, but just people's comfort uh, and people not always wanting to see people living in other ways. Do you think people deep down maybe like the policy but don't like the questions, don't like the political incorrectness of it all? Uh, well, I mean, I think Canadian attitudes are quite diverse. I suspect there's a lot of people who uh, share the view that somehow there's a sense of Canadianness that's being challenged by uh, patterns of immigration. And so I suspect there's, uh, you know, probably 20% or 30% of Canadians who uh, would be relatively supportive of Leach's policy. Um, so, I mean, I think, I think there's a, a base of support uh, for that kind of view. But you're right, when, when you get down to, well, how would you police it, uh, it begins involving, you know, procedures where people begin to say, well, that doesn't make sense or that's silly, and it begins to melt that away. So I, mean, I think Kelly Leach will do better if she's just putting forward this idea uh, than when she actually would be trying to explain how you might make it work. Uh, is this more about Canadian values or religious extremism? Uh, well, I mean, I think for Kelly Leach, it's about trying to win a conservative leadership yeah. base and, and, and recognizing... Uh, that, yeah, I mean, I think it's really about Canadian values, although it, there's a way in which she can uh, brandish this fear of religious extremism as a threat to those. Uh, and that's how, how it works, I think, for her as a, a way of mobilizing a part of the Conservative Party base and probably reaching a number of people who wouldn't necessarily think of themselves as conservatives, but, you know, share the view that uh, in some ways uh, what makes us Canadian is, is at risk. It, so, again, is political correctness uh, preventing us from addressing this issue? Is it, is, it, uh, is it taking us away from the issue at hand? I don't know if it's political correctness or whether there's a lot of Canadians who have a different sense of what our values yeah. are. Mm-hmm. And, you know, part of it, you know, what's a Canadian value? Is it part of it uh, that we are a diverse population, that uh, we've had uh, waves of immigration over time? 
And part of what makes us strong as a political community is having the conversation of finding a way to speak about what unites us, even as each wave of newcomers brings uh, different ways of being or different ways of seeing things. So, uh, I mean, in that sense, uh, I think it's less a political correctness saying, you know, you can't say that, although some people do say that because, you know, but I don't think it's because it's politically correct, but because in a sense it undermines their sense of what the Canadian political community is, that if you begin telling people that they aren't welcome uh, or that we can't even have the conversation about uh, how different traditions mesh with the traditions that are here, well, then you begin to undermine uh, other people's sense of what Canada is. Uh, do you think it's about a difference in values or it's a feeling that Canadians think that we are regressing? In other words, if people come in with, uh, for, for example, gay rights, I mean, we, we certainly know the strides that, that we've made in, in that category. Uh, some other groups may not feel the same way. Um, is it about values or is it about a sense that, you know, we've come this far, now it appears to some we're moving backwards? Uh, yeah, I mean, I find it hard to think that it's really about values uh, in the sense that the people who put it forward often aren't really dealing with the complexity of people's real values, but more a kind of caricature uh, mm. of what, uh, you know, particularly Islam uh, is, and a really deformed one about how people think and live and the diversity of views within that. Uh, so then I think, you know, it becomes a way of uh, expressing a discomfort uh, with what Canada has become, uh, a discomfort with the idea that it's not just the old Judeo-Christian values uh, that are going to be on the table, that it's not a white Canada, right? that it's a, it's a much more diverse uh, country. Uh, and so, I mean, one way that it kind of uh, ex- expresses itself then is to say that it's about values under attack, but I think in many ways it's more uh, the idea that there won't be just one way of living in Canada, that that is always uh, changing. And, you know, when things change, people have to give something up. And they find that hard to do. Canada always known as a diverse country. We've, we've been a country of immigrants for an awfully long time. Why these problems now, or have they been there all along? Uh, I mean, I think, I don't know if there's problems, but certainly... Issues. Uh, yeah, but all along there's been people, I mean, there's people who are unhappy when the Italians came to Hamilton. Right? Yeah, mean, yeah. Uh, you know, throughout Canadian history, uh, there's always been a strong nativist voice uh, saying we don't want these new people because they have these strange cultures and they uh, do things differently. And, you know, they come and they end up in their little enclaves. And, of course, that makes sense because they're also, you know, places of mutual support. So, I mean, I don't think this is new. I, I think it's uh, the kind of current manifestation of it. I mean, what's traditionally been uh, been kept this out of politics is the fact that our political parties have all been competing for the votes of newcomers. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's enough places, enough ridings in this country uh, with a strong immigrant base that running on a nativist platform is going to hurt you electorally. I mean, what I think is different here is that we have uh, someone running for the leadership of the Conservative Party who's willing to risk the success and popularity of the Conservative Party in the broader electorate uh, to win a narrow base of Conservative voters. Uh, I mean, she, she must feel that there's enough people in the Conservative Party we're going to be rallying uh, around this, or at least we'll be giving money to fund her campaign around this, uh, that she's willing to risk real long-term harm to the Conservative Party and the broader electorate, you know, in the many ridings in this country where there's a significant chunk of the population uh, who, is, uh, who, come, uh, who are immigrants themselves 
in many cases relatively recent and will be a bit suspicious of trying to put in some of these tests. Uh, PCs have been quick to uh, 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 put distance between Kelly Leach and, and their policy and, and what they think uh, Canada is moving forward. What has this done for the party? What has it, how has it hurt the party? Well, I mean, I guess we'll have to see in the long run uh, what it does for the party. I mean, certainly there is a, a vote in Canada that will be, you know, supportive of this uh, move. Uh, it will solidify the Conservative Party around that. But for people, uh, you know, like Michael Chong or Jason Kenney before them, who are really trying to say, you know, if this party wants to be successful anywhere in the GTA, for instance, or in Calgary, uh, Vancouver, Montreal, uh, it has to become something other than uh, a party of kind of white reaction that has to reach out and build bridges. And so certainly Kelly Leach will provide no end of fodder uh, for future liberal campaigns to say, well, that's just uh, hiding the true face of the Conservative Party. Look how successful Kelly Leach was in trying to run on this. Uh, let's remember, you know, the question of the barbaric cultural practices right. niche line uh, in the previous campaign. So, I mean, the Conservative Party is run on some kind of aspects of trying to, to play uh, to this division. And, and let's remember uh, Kelly Leach is sorry, not sorry about that. So, uh, you know, and saying sorry for it, but then coming back with uh, this campaign. So It does seem a little odd that she, after Harper was gone, talked about the whole barbaric cultural pl- practices thing and, and broke down in the CBC interview and such, and now has this stand. How do you explain that? Uh, and maybe, and obviously, I should ask her. But what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, politicians are people of successive sinceritys. So <laughs> there's, that, there's that aspect to it. I mean, uh, I mean, it may be that uh, she was really upset that it hadn't played well politically, and that it maybe had offended some people. And she's not really trying to walk a fine line this time by saying, "Well, no, in fact, what we're doing with this is ensuring." Uh, you know, a kind of uh, a commonality of Canadian values. And I mean, if you had someone like Pauline Marois pushing the idea of Charter of Quebec values when she was uh, Premier of Quebec uh, only about three years ago, uh, you know, she likewise was saying, you oh, know, this is about inclusion. This is about letting people who come here know what the rules are so that they can be included and it's a clear roadmap. And, you know, you can make the, the case around that, but I think the way the language has been imposed in, in Kelly Leach's speech, it's much more about... Uh, you know, trying to play to a disease in parts of the Canadian population that you know, something's changing with uh, ongoing demographic change and ongoing immigration. Is it fair to compare her to Donald Trump? Uh, I don't know if it's fair to compare anyone to Donald <laughs> Trump, but I mean, it is interesting that uh, in some ways, uh, you know, what does Donald Trump do? Part of it is he opens the door to other people to take up more, if you like, xenophobic or divisive appeals along these uh, lines. And provided you're just a bit less colorful than Donald, uh, you can always point to him as saying, well, he's okay, so why am I not okay? And so that's, uh, you know, the danger of something like the Trump presidency or uh, his run for the presidency is that uh, he opens up a lot of space for people to uh, take on these issues. And so in some ways it's healthy uh, because there's a lot of people who think that way, but we never talk about it in politics much. Uh, but it could be unhealthy if uh, ultimately uh, it becomes acceptable uh, to say some of these things or to, to begin casting aspersions on groups, talking about them stoning, thinking that it's okay to stone, say, gays and lesbians. And, uh, I mean, is that really an accurate reflection of the groups of people they're talking about? How do you think this is going to play out? Do you think that uh, she's on her way out? Do you think that she will gain traction with this? I think she's ensured that she has a, a fundraising core that will see her through this uh, campaign and a core of supporters that means that 
she won't be and also ran in the race. Uh, I suspect that uh, as popular as she'll be with certain parts of the conservative base, uh, I think they too may see that this will be a problem in terms of growing their electoral appeal. and may be more interested to look at candidates like Maxime Bernier or Michael Chong, you know, or Lisa Rayet if she throws her, her hat into the race, as uh, conservatives who maybe speak to the broader population. So there's a way you can play to a base effectively in a leadership race to do well, but a lot of party members who are voting in those uh, races also want their party to win the next election and will be thinking about whether the sort of appeals Kelly Leach has put forward are ones that are going to be successful for them on the doorstep. Will this knock the PCs off their message? Uh, you know, this is still just a leadership convention. It's not an election. But will this come back? And let's let's say that she's not elected leader of the party. Will this still still come back to haunt them, do you think? Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, you know, politics is a bit of a dirty sport, and so everything she says and all the support she gets in her race can be used by the Liberals uh, and the NDP when they're trying to speak to communities who might be, you know, offended from that uh, approach. Uh, I mean, obviously it's less uh, successful if she's not really the leader, but you know, nevertheless the support that she receives is kind of an indication of uh, at least, you know, what part of the Conservative Party thinks, and that might be an effective uh, appeal, at least in the next election. How, uh, Rona Ambrose and others, as you mentioned, have, have downplayed this or certainly come right out and, and denounced that, uh, denounced what she said. Um, what will they do to try to put her off message? I mean, is, I, I see a very divisive PC party here. Yeah, I mean, I think their plan would probably be to try and find who a serious candidate would be and to rally around them. Uh, yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think the point is to try and push the leadership race into a place where Kelly Leach begins to look like, uh, you know, someone who maybe has some really engaged supporters, but uh, is not really reflective of the broad mass of the Conservative Party. I mean, a bit like when David Orchard, I mean, he was obviously running a different, very different campaign, but was running for the Conservative leadership, but on a pretty... I don't know, it looked more like an NDP platform in many ways, his positions. I mean, the Conservative Party did their best to make him look like some kind of strange outsider who was not going to win and, and shouldn't be taken that seriously. And, and presumably, Kelly Leach is a bit more inside the tent, but they'll do their best to kind of limit uh, the look that she has as reflecting the broad base of the Conservative Party. Will this encourage those that are sitting on the sidelines and thinking about entering the race to get in it, just to get the PCs back on message? I mean, the longer that say the Peter McKay's or, or, or the other stronger candidates that people are thinking may come out of the woodwork, uh, the longer they, they put this off, it might be better for their own individual opportunities, but is that the best thing for the PC party at this point? Yeah, I mean, I think it will quickly whittle down the number of people sitting on the sidelines where uh, the, the sort of party notables who are ready to be on their team and are holding back endorsements for anyone else because they would you know want to support McKay or... Uh, uh, Rayet or, or one of these other uh, figures will say, well, you've got to make a decision or I'm declaring for Bernier or I'm declaring for Chong or one of these other candidates. So, I mean, I think the pressure will be stepped up on those people to declare or to really lose their, their team to the other players. So I think it probably will lead to a string of endorsements for the existing declared candidates or a chance to push one of the people who's sitting on the fence into the field as some sort of preferred front runner. How big is this story? Is the public following this? Uh, I don't think the public is following it too much. I mean, I think it's good fodder for uh, discussions at the coffee shop. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, people like to talk about Canadian values. I mean, that's part of the success of, of Leach's appeal is that uh, there is a certain uh, unease, uh, and that can be mobilized into politics if she's the one making that case. 
so, I mean, you know, it's relevant there, but uh, I don't think not many Canadians at this stage are watching it too closely. Uh, I'm not sure too many of them have ever heard of Kelly Leach before. And so unless he's able to get a bit more momentum, uh, it's probably a one-month wonder. Peter Grave has been with us, Professor of Political Science, back at McMaster University for another year. Peter, thanks very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. You're welcome. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. The polls are showing a great divide between, or sorry, a, which was once a great divide between Hillary and Donald Trump, now moving ever so slightly. And depending on which poll you look at, it's pretty much a neck-and-neck race. Joining us now is Barry Kay, political science professor, Wilfrid Laurier University. He is with us now. Hello, Barry. How are you today? I'm fine. Thank you for taking the time to join us. What are your thoughts in the closing of this race as we move into that sweet spot and and into the final few weeks? Well, it's not uncommon for um, presidential election races to tighten up as we get closer and closer to to election day. It's still two months away, though. Um, And indeed, it should be remembered, the polls now show that the numbers, when you average out any given poll, can vary a bit. And I frankly wouldn't pay too much attention to just one specific poll, but there's lots coming out when they get averaged, and there are a number of sites, Real Clear Politics has it, 538.com has it. Um, we see that the, um, you know, the average over the last uh, week to 10 days is something like about a four, maybe five-point lead, somewhere in there, four points or so, uh, on behalf of supporting um, and favoring, let me say, uh, Hillary Clinton. And that was the margin that uh, Barack Obama won in 2012. So, it, it is getting a little bit closer, and I'm sure the the Trump uh, supporters are sort of, you know, getting reinforced and enthused by that. But the American election is not really decided by popular vote. Popular vote plays a role in it, but it's based on this uh, cockamamie uh, process called the Electoral College, Electric, which was established yeah. 230 years ago, and which has never been able to really be be fundamentally changed. I won't dwell on that right now. So it's important to understand that, in, and because of that, each state is sort of winner-take-all based on its size. So California, the biggest state, gets 55. I think it is electoral college votes, and so the smaller states like Wyoming and Vermont get only three. But whether a candidate wins by 10 million votes or 10 votes, it, the, the impact on their the allocation of the electoral college vote is the same. So in, in fact, what we see is that it's really more important to kind of get a sense of how things are going on in various states. And um, American elections these days, California is actually, even though it's the biggest, isn't that important because everyone knows it uh, very much favors the Democrats, just as Texas on the other side tends to favor the Republicans. Uh, so it really comes down to the, about 10 or maybe 12 swing states. I can go through them if you'd like, but if people have been following this, they know who they are, Virginia and Iowa and Ohio and, and uh, Pennsylvania and Florida and Virginia and so forth. Um, and that in that particular regard, Hillary Clinton is still, doesn't have huge advantages in terms of her winning margin, but is ahead in almost all of them. Why? Uh, the why? bottom line is, I think Hillary, even though it, 3% or 4% would seem like a fairly tight margin, in terms of the way the election looks right now, and things can change, but right now, I, I would still think that Hillary Clinton isn't in bad shape. Uh, why don't, uh, why doesn't Hillary have a greater lead? I mean, you know, when we hear the negativity in regard to Trump and, and this, that, and the other, uh, yet he still manages to keep this a race. Why isn't she pushing ahead by now? America's a very polarized place, and that even, um, it's been a long time, there have been huge margins in years gone by. I can think of 64, Goldwater losing to Johnson by 20 points, and, um, 
Uh, Ronald Reagan's margins weren't quite as big as that, but certainly he won decisively, carried almost every, every state in the Union. Uh, but the fact is, America today is much more evenly divided, and elections are generally close. And that, that, quite honestly, Hillary Clinton has turned out to be a very flawed candidate. People don't have much more trust. She is more experienced, and people who respect that are probably moving toward her. But the fact is that people do not see that she's much more trustworthy and don't have much more confidence in her than many of them do with Donald Trump. Now, in Canada, we tend to see things a little bit differently, and certainly I don't know very many people who are supporters of Donald Trump around here. But in the States, there are places where, in fact, just the, the way many of us feel about Donald Trump, they feel about Hillary Clinton. It's amazing how that happens. And, and here's an anecdotal story. Uh, we had friends that lived in Ottawa, in the Ottawa area, for, for a long period of time and moved to the Carolinas. And now they're Trump supporters. And when we ran into them in the summer, we were completely surprised because they usually leaned a bit to the left. But it's just so prevalent down there that it's, it's, it's like we're talking to different people now. It's, it's fascinating. Did they explain why they changed? <sighs> yeah, they're scared of Muslims, which I just, I just found astounding. I just found astounding. Well, I, I, I don't want to suggest, even though uh, you know, I write columns for the, uh, the local paper in the Kitchener-Waterloo region, and I've suggested in that that the contest is probably beyond Donald Trump's ability to defeat Hillary Clinton. I don't I, want to suggest that Hillary Clinton couldn't, use, couldn't lose. I, I, I think the fear-mongering has paid off uh, well, in this has, case. But, but if, there are more, uh, if there are external events, things like more uh, ISIS-sympathetic attacks, I think that kind of thing yeah. could, in fact, throw it, to, um, throw it to Trump. At the moment, I don't think it's there. And I, Donald Trump is, uh, is viewed uh, with uh, mistrust ever, ever, ever so much more as, uh, as, as Clinton, maybe more so. But the, the fact is that the people who feel that way really loathe the respective candidates on the either, other side. Mm. Trump people aren't moving to Clinton. Clinton people probably aren't moving to Trump. There are still a few undecideds. Um, and indeed, the demographics of the American race are changing. There are more and more minorities, not Muslims especially, but particularly people from Asia and especially Hispanics. Uh, there are more of them. And uh, Donald Trump, during the last year, seems to have insulted just about everybody. Um, now, that doesn't mean that doesn't offend all, as many people as, as some of us might like to think it should. But these are the dynamics, and, and that it's very much locked in. I don't think the final uh, contest is going to be decided by, right now it says, I say, uh, maybe three, four, five points. I, it may change by a couple of points. I don't think it's going to change very much from that. Do polls influence voters, though? I mean, if, if voters are seeing one candidate going out in front of the other, are they more, like, more likely to react a certain way than if the other candidate is way out, or even a, a tie or, or a neck-and-neck race at this point? Not so much in two-person races, um, but in Canada, as we have multi-parties, and this year there are third and fourth parties in the, the Green Party on the left and the Libertarian Party kind of on the right, uh, that indeed people may feel that voting for them is a wasted vote. So if those parties aren't doing particularly well, polls may dissuade them from throwing away their vote. We see the same thing with the Green Party in Canada. Uh, in that, to that extent, um, uh, the polls can have some effect. And there are perhaps are some people who say that I'll get on the bandwagon of the winner, but frankly, uh, research that isn't uh, always fully understood by the public suggests that indeed there are as many or more people who vote for the underdog, the person who's behind in polls, as the person that's ahead in polls. So by and large, I think polls, in terms of the two leading candidates, polls in themselves don't, don't change things a whole lot. There's one other factor, though, that I think advantages Hillary Clinton, even though 
the race is getting a little bit closer. And that is that she has built up a, I mean, the Democrats generally have a very extensive get-out-the-vote campaign organization. Not everywhere, but in those various swing states, states like Ohio, Virginia, Florida, and so forth, that are North Carolina now, that are, that are being particularly focused upon. Uh, the Trump campaign seems to have virtually none of that. Donald Trump thought that because he did so well in the primaries without it, they didn't really need an on-the-ground organization. Um, and that while that's not going to affect the national vote in terms of 2%, I think in those closely contested states, some of which I've just mentioned, that indeed that will probably provide a little bit of an edge for the Hillary Clinton campaign as well. Do you think the polls will be so close uh, after the debates? Well, we'll see. Um, debates normally don't change things that much. Uh, but can't you, you but can't, to the, uh, the, the very first one. But can't you see, Barry, in a scenario like this where we've got these types of candidates, one that talks with one you know, sentence sound bites and the other one who's obviously uh, uh, a little bit more uh, aware of what's going on when it comes to international policy and such. I mean, can't, can't you see that swinging one way or the other? One might think that Hillary Clinton's experience, I'm sure she will sound much more thoughtful and experienced with regard to policy. But one of the factors in debates is whether people outperform expectations. Yeah. And there are a lot of people. Now, again, I think a lot of this is pretty much baked in now. I think the, most of the Trump supporters aren't moving, and I don't think most of the Clinton supporters are going to move. But it is close, and just a couple of points one way or the other could change things a little bit. But the impact of the debates is largely to change ex- expectations. If people do better than expected, I think that happened with uh, Justin Trudeau yeah. in, in our election last exactly. year. Mm-hmm. I think it did help. Elections, uh, debates can matter, but Typically, the, the candidate who's leading at, and on Labor Day usually is the candidate that wins at the end. I, so I don't want us to assume that the debates may change things. Uh, but again, with, Hillary, with um, Donald Trump, rather, we have a very unorthodox candidate who, in fact, is very much a showman in his media manipulation. And I'm sure he's going to throw a number of curveballs at Hillary Clinton and become much more tough-minded. Usually, the candidate who's ahead in the polls tends to be much more careful and cautious in their debate uh, preparation and style that we saw that with Obama last time, mm-hmm. and it actually hurt him in the early in the first debate. He came back later. My hunch is that Hillary Clinton is not just going to sit back and wait to be insulted by Donald Trump. I think she's going to go at it. That would certainly be the advice I would have for her, even though she is a few points ahead in the polls. And there was a suggestion uh, from one of the pundits I was watching that said that uh, that p- the polls actually appeared to go up when she was more combative and actually went at Trump. Are you surprised by that? Um, again, poll, I've heard polls say different things. I think the most important uh, asset she has had in recent months was the, the fact that her convention was stronger than the, uh, than the, the Republican convention. Um, I, I, hadn't, I don't remember the particular poll you're citing now, uh, but I think um, the notion that uh, Hillary Clinton should just lay back because she's ahead and be careful, I don't think that's, that's good wisdom. I think she is going to be much more aggressive and try to match. I'm not sure she can anticipate all the all the charges that uh, Trump might come up with. But nonetheless, I, have a, I expect her to be much more aggressive in the campaign. I think that's the smart move. You alluded before if uh, there was some sort of attack on U.S. soil, that could greatly change things. Yeah, uh, <laughs> um, for sure. In fact, that's probably the, the strongest possibility that would assist. Tr- I don't, at the moment, I don't think Trump's going to get elected. Mm-hmm. But should there be one or more of the events, the kind of things we saw in San Bernardino and Orlando, uh, that could very much change the attitudes and create reignite this fear that you that describe ascribe to your friends in in the Carolinas about uh, about how they might act. If that could and should happen, I think that very much changes the odds a little bit in Trump's favor. Uh, how how will 
how will the public react to that? I mean, are we, if that, it almost sounds that, you know, by suggesting that, and I hate to be a conspiracy theorist, that, that we're going to see one because of that. Well, I, I'm not sure it's going to be engineered by the Trump forces, even though many of them realize that probably would help them. Look, it might have helped um, uh, Steve Harper in our election last year had there been a, a, mm. a terrorist attack on Canadian soil at that Good time. Good point. Um, that I, you know, these, I, I don't expect, I, I'm not too into these uh, various conspiracy theories that, that, that float, mm-hmm. float about. Um, I, I, I'm trying to suggest what it could, right. what could happen to sort of upset the, the balance that seems to be there now. Hillary Clinton is not going to win dramatically because elections, by and large, in the last uh, 15, 20 years in, uh, in the United States have been close. And it's because there's a lot of Republicans and conservatives on one side and a lot of Democrats on the other. That's why it's going to be close. It's, as I say, it's very much baked in. There have been a number of prominent Republicans, particularly those that are concerned about foreign policy, who have basically stepped away from, from Trump. They're not necessarily enthusiasts of Clinton, but that's one of the factors that's changing. On the other hand, Trump is an economic nationalist. He's suggesting that, in fact, free trade should be, should be very, uh, very, very much avoided. And that appeals to a number of blue-collar workers who've lost their, their jobs, not so much just because of free trade, but basically because of uh, technology, uh, but who feel that, in fact, if, we, if the United States took a tougher position in terms of trade with China and Korea and other countries, but Canada as well. Uh, Canada, actually, many of us, not all of us, but many of us benefit from the fact that we have a free trade agreement with, with uh, the states. This is something that Trump, Trump wants to revisit, the, uh, the NAFTA agreement with us. But people who have lost their jobs and haven't done as well, these are the middle-aged uh, working-class people, frequently people that uh, do not have college degrees. These are the people that might be moving away from the Democrats toward the, toward the Republicans. This is, the polls show uh, that this is the first election in history where it looks like college graduates are more likely to vote Democratic than Republican. Mm. Uh, Don, uh, uh, um, excuse me, Romney, rather, uh, carried that group by 14 points in the... 2012 election, even though he lost to uh, Obama generally, he carried the, um, the, the college graduates by a significant amount. This time, it's totally reversed. At the same time, people with high school gra- graduation, or yeah. less than college anyway, are mo- much more likely to offset that and move toward Trump. I think there are more of the former than the latter, but we'll see. Barry Kay has been with us, political science professor at Wilfrid Laurier University. Barry, as always, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Happy to talk to you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.